0: Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I am so glad that you are with us today. Today I'm going to continue a series we kicked off at the beginning of this month called Filters. Um, And I don't have any crazy shots of my family. Um, At this point, they're kind of clued in what I'm up to. Um, So if you'd like to send me your filters, um, your filtered shots, feel free to do so. Um, But what I want to do today is take you to a date, May 25th, 1992. It was Channel 2 in Manila, Philippines. And and there was a moment right after the news, the evening news, where uh, people from all over the nation were tuned in. You see, Pepsi, um, trying to gain some market share, had come up with this idea that they were calling their fever campaign. And the idea was to put bottle caps with certain winning numbers underneath it. And every night they would reveal the winning numbers. This actually was working, it kicked off in February, and by May 25th, they had actually experienced a 40% increase in their soft drink sales. Now, part of it was tied to the fact that if you had the winning bottle cap, you would essentially win the equivalent of about $40,000, which in that time in, in the Philippines was a substantial amount of money that would radically change your life. And so as the money was being given out, and as kind of this fever campaign was catching fever, more and more people were watching the show. And that night on May 25th, the number 349 popped up on the screen. Now, you can imagine if you had 349, how your life was changed in an instant because there in your hand in a Pepsi bottle cap was a key to a whole different lifestyle. Well, what Pepsi didn't know was that the computer... System in charge of picking that number and printing those bottle caps caps, had actually glitched. And it actually had printed 800,000 bottle caps with three, four, nine on it. And over the subsequent weeks, over 486,000 people showed up to claim their $40,000. Now, I think it's interesting that there was Over 300,000 bottle caps that people never even noticed, which makes me want to look at my bottle cap a little bit more often because 300,000 plus people had a winning bottle cap that they'd just thrown away. So 400,000 plus people show up at Pepsi demanding their $40,000 and Pepsi, uh, all they can do is say, sorry, um, that would be a lot of money. Um, That was a computer glitch, not our bad. And that didn't go over very well in the city. In fact, um, what happened in the kind of uh, aftershock of that television broadcast that night was riots in the streets. Uh, People lost their life. Pepsi actually had to hire armed guards to ride around with their Pepsi truck. So imagine a Pepsi truck pulls up to the grocery store and there's armed guards getting out of the truck so that they can will in Pepsi containers into the grocery store. Barbed wire fence had to be put around the um, actual distribution plants and manufacturing plants because people were trying to throw homemade bombs into Pepsi's headquarters to blow it up. I mean, it was insane. Like, there was a mass movement to overthrow it. What's so fascinating about this story to me is how those people in a moment experienced their circumstances radically shifting when 349 popped up. And in an instant, they went from being rich to being poor again. And this shift in circumstances upended and caused the Philippines to go through a pretty tumultuous period for a series of weeks that ultimately ended in a court case where Pepsi was found not liable for the computer software glitch. And one of the tie-ins, even though this is 1992 in the Philippines with Pepsi containers, it helps to illustrate, I think, one of the most powerful filters that we find ourselves in, the circumstantial filter, the one that says, if my life was different, if I wasn't in these circumstances, then it would be better. And Underneath that circumstantial filter is that my life, the quality of my life is equal to the quality of the circumstances that I'm going through. I think the circumstantial filter is pretty relevant for all of us because we're all in a crazy season. Whether you're a small child who's wondering what school's going to look like this year, or whether you're a parent of a small child wondering what school's going to look like this year. Whether you're someone who's walking through a completely different season and stage and age of life, and you're wondering, what does this look like relationally for me? Or what does this look like employment-wise for me? There are so many different Circumstantial challenges tucked in to this season, whether it's health, whether it's relationships, whether it's financial, whether it's in your home, or whether it's the fact that you feel trapped inside of your home. And that what I want to do today is take you to a letter that we looked at last week. In some ways, this is a continuation of a conversation from last week's message. Because in that message, there is a hopeful message that Paul writes. In, in that letter, There is a statement that he's making throughout the entire four chapters. And it's simply this, that you may not enjoy it, but you can still have joy in it. This is the central theme of the letter to the church in Philippi that we call Philippians. And it's this joy filter that Paul, in his letter, is seeking to communicate to them. And it's that joy filter that I want us to look at today as we continue our series called Filters. Last week, I was in Philippians chapter 3, and just to kind of briefly summarize uh, what Philippians is, um, Philippi was an interesting place in that it was a city that had special status in the Roman Empire. If you lived in Philippi, you were considered a Roman citizen. You dressed like a Roman, you talked like a Roman, you had the, the benefits and the status of a Roman citizen, which may not mean a lot for us today, but in that ancient Roman Empire, being a Roman citizen put you in a whole different class. You had a different legal proceeding if you were a Roman citizen. You were treated differently by the government, by the local authorities. If you were a Roman citizen, being a Roman citizen was a significant. It's when, you, when if you've ever traveled abroad and you've been in countries, um, you know, maybe like ten years ago and people find out you're an American, they would look at an American differently because they're like, oh, being an American has different things attached to it. That was, in some ways, what people saw Roman citizenship to be. It was significant. And Philippi was a place, if you lived there, if you were born there, because of some back history, you were automatically considered a Roman citizen. It was a place with a huge military garrison they had. Um, a huge amount of Roman soldiers to protect it, so it felt safe. And Paul, who had helped to start a church or a series of churches in Philippi, was writing a letter to them from Rome under house arrest. And he was waiting on his trial, whether or not to find out if he was going to live or die. And he writes this letter, and there is a word at the beginning of the passage in Philippians 4, 4 that I want to highlight. He says this, rejoice. In the Lord. Now, rejoice is an interesting word. It's actually 17 times in about 107 verses, Paul's going to say the word for joy. It averages out to roughly one every six verses, uh, he, he touches on joy. And um, in some scholar, kind of academic circles, the letter to the church in Philippi is actually called the Epistle of Joy. The Epistle is just another way of saying the letter of joy. And so Paul has a huge in fact in the entire Bible to kind of further emphasize how much joy was a theme in this letter. Um, only the book of Psalms in the Jewish scriptures the Old Testament is there any other book that has more references to joy in it. And so Paul writes this letter to really help them understand how they can seize joy, how their life can be lived with the filter with joy in any Kicks off with this command, rejoice in the Lord, which is sort of fascinating. And in fact, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, this is really important. In the ancient world um, and in the modern world, when you speak, oftentimes you say, you're, you kind of repeat it. If you're a parent, you've repeated yourself multiple times. If you've ever given a lecture or a talk, if you've ever sat in a lecture or a talk, most likely the way that you understand the most important thing is the thing that gets repeated. What gets said the most is often the indication that this is an important piece of information. And that, that important piece of information shows up in repetition. But that's not the way it is in written language. In written language, you you would just write it once because the idea is the reader can read it, see it, and if they need to, to make sure they understand it, they can just simply go back and read it again. And in an ancient time when repetition in writing would have been an expensive activity, right? The ink, the papyrus, everything that Paul was writing on was costly. And for Paul, to write this again. I will say it again. Rejoice is a huge, huge emphasis on this thing. He's like, I want to make sure you understand how important this is. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now, I think it's helpful to understand because in our modern kind of language, the word joy oftentimes gets interchanged with happiness. And what Paul is not saying is happiness. Happiness is primarily an emotion. It's an emotion oftentimes tied to some future address. When I get there or when I get that or when I have them or when I'm with her, then I will be happy. But Paul's not commanding happiness because he's saying rejoice in the Lord always. That's any time. In the really good times and in the really bad times. You can't command an emotion. I have a little girl who reminds me frequently that you cannot command an emotion. Right? It never works to saying, stop crying or stop being sad or stop being angry about that. You can't command emotions. But what Paul understands is that while happiness is an emotional state tied to assertive circumstances, joy is, is predicated on a consistency and anchor regardless of your circumstances. It's not an emotion. It's a state of being. It's a security. And this is why he can command joy. This is why... Like Paul, you're going to hear me repeat that phrase frequently through this message that you may not enjoy what you're going through, but you can have joy as you go through it. Because enjoying something is happiness. But joy is what Paul is commanding us to. And he makes this point when he says, in the Lord, because joy is anchored in something. Joy is the response to an objective reality And for Paul, he's trying to communicate to them, look, joy is found in Jesus. The anchor, the foundation is Jesus. In fact, when everything feels like it's up in the air right now, what really matters is what's underneath your feet. And he's like, Jesus is our foundation. Jesus is our security. And that's why he's saying, where do you get joy? What's the source of your joy? The source of your joy is Jesus, which is a word that's used more frequently than even joy in the letter to the church of Philippi. Because he's recognizing and he's calling them to not riding the the waves of emotion. He's like, look, you're going to have emotions and you can't command them. But I want to call you to a filter where the emotions aren't commanding you. This past week, I had this kind of moment play out in my household. We had a Really big, big moment. Um, My daughter was kind of walking, working through some things. And um, like many of your kids, um, like many of you, regardless of your age, there's some grief in this current reality that we're living in. That there is a sense that I wish I had a magic wand and I could wave it and fix it and change it. But we can't. And so we're stuck with the reality of things just kind of being stinky. And my daughter was having one of those days. And we'd gotten really kind of keyed in and catastrophic on one thing specifically. And I was sitting there trying to have this conversation, trying to help her process that, you know, um, we, can't, can't, we can't command our emotions, but our emotions don't have to command us either. And I realized that like no amount of rational dialogue was getting through. And so I had my phone in my pocket, so I pulled it out and I snapped this picture Actually, I snapped two pictures, and the first picture was this one, and in, it, in her room, she has a little unicorn nightlight, and, uh, and so I took a picture of it really close, and when I took a picture, and it's just like, the only thing you can really see is this blurry unicorn. Everything in the background is completely out of focus, can't see anything at all, and then I took this other picture which was the unicorn, but I let the background get a little bit more in focus. And then I put those two pictures up, and I said, hey, sweetie, let me, let me talk with these two pictures. Sometimes when we get in really hard emotional states, our focus gets so tight on the circumstance that we lose sight of everything else going around it. Now, you... you haven't been in her room, so let me tell you what that colorful little blob is back there that was instantly recognizable for us. That is um, Big Fat Colossal Bear. Um, Big Fat Colossal Bear is his name, and Big Fat Colossal Bear is ginormous. He's about three to four feet tall. We want him in an arcade, and And so he's just kind of hanging out beside her bookshelf. So she loves Big Fat Colossal Bear. Sometimes we just throw him on top of her. Um, Henry, our son, loves Big Fat Colossal Bear because you can like dive into this four foot tall bear. Um, So you can see Big Fat Colossal and then all her books that she loves is over there. So notice how if you don't just focus on the unicorn, all the other good stuff kind of pop out. You can see it. I said, sometimes in moments and circumstances that feel overwhelming, that feel emotionally demanding and controlling and commanding, we want to we make sure that we don't let it grab our focus. Because when we go through hard circumstances, oftentimes the only thing we can focus in on is the bad, right? You can tell this in relationships. Whenever you're only seeing the negative in a relationship, it's usually a sign that you've kind of lost sight of all the good things. When someone's sitting down and they're talking about their spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance, and they're like, they always do this and they never, you know, da, da, da. And they, they can list 17 of the negatives. And I'm like, okay, they sound horrible. So let me just agree with you. If that's all they are, man, that's bad. But is there some good there too? What's, what's some things about them that other people would notice that they would appreciate? And what that often does is that, helps people come out of this frame into this one. Because as bad as it is, there is always good there too. And happiness, that pursuit of happiness, may work sometimes, but when you go through hard circumstances, it will fail you every time. Because all you will see is the hard thing in front of you. Uh, Another helpful way of kind of unpacking this even deeper of what I think Paul is trying to, point to this. Because if you notice, Paul's writing this letter in prison. So this letter is written to a group of people he cares about, who he can't physically see. And he writes this letter to thank them for their generosity because he depended on them for their livelihood. He writes this letter to tell them how he's praying for them, how grateful he is for them. He writes this letter to instruct them, to lead them so that they can better live and lead and move in their city to reflect Jesus' love to the community. Paul isn't focused on him. He's focused on them. And what Paul is demonstrating is actually uh, um, some some different, different people have actually kind of quantified this in a way that I think makes it easier to talk about. And it's called the three circles. And the three circles is the circle of control, the circle of influence, and the circle of concern. And that oftentimes in circumstances that feel overwhelming, what really is often underneath the surface is that they feel out of control. Being in a pandemic feels like it's completely out of control. Being in an election season feels like it's completely out of control. There are so many factors working right now. If you are trying to figure out what is school going to look like for your kids, it is so anxiety-inducing because you have no control. In fact, if you ever want to really get a glimpse of how much you, you crave control, because most of us are like, oh, you know, I don't have to be in complete control. Get in a car with a 15-year-old who's never driven and let them drive. You will instantly discover how much you like control. Because when they're careening around curves and you want to grab that steering wheel or put your foot over on the brake, you're like, oh, I do like being in control because I want to save my life, right? When I was 15, my mom refused to ride with me. My mom still doesn't like to ride with me. And a lot of it, I love you, mom, I know you're listening, is because she wants to be in control. Because when I'm driving, I'm in control. And, and so we innately, down deep, want control. And oftentimes, what creates attention is when we find ourselves in a circumstance we can't control. And where the picture really helps is what I was trying to tell Ella that night was: what are the things you can still control? So you know, this this week, my wife and I were talking about school. We don't really have a lot of control in how decisions are going to be made by administrators. We don't have a lot of control on what the pandemic is going to do. And as kids come back to school and as sports kick in and as fall ramps up. So what can we control? Well, one thing that we're doing for, in our own household is we know that our daughter is going to be virtual. For at least a majority of class this fall. So we've been putting a lot of emphasis and conversation with her about setting up her desk the way that she wants it set up. So you can't control when you go to school, but you can control the environment at our house where you'll get to engage with school. And that's a small thing, but it's amazing how reclaiming control can help you. It's a focusing on what you can do. Our our student ministry, Dallas, is planning a party that some of you um, have been invited to. And if you haven't been invited to us, let us know through the connection card um, because we want to make sure that you, you know about it. But one of the things that we're kind of batting around for that night is an ability to make a ridiculous mask. Because right now, we all have to wear a mask. And it kind of feels like you don't have a lot of control in that. And for the students, we're like, what if we just have a fun night where it's like, make the most ridiculous mask you can make you want spikes sticking out of them things, you want flames, not really because that's dangerous, but, you know, do something where you reclaim control because we oftentimes long for, and when we find ourselves in an area of concern, something that's frustrating, something that's hard, something that's scary, something we can't control, and we keep trying to exert control over, it, it just leads to more and more and more frustration, and so what can you control in this season? And in this circumstance, that feels like out of control. Maybe you can't control whether or not in October or November you still have a job. But you can control how diligently you save. You can control how you manage your budget and the expenses that you cut just in case you lose your job. There's these small things. Yeah, they may not change everything. But when you can focus on what you still have control of, it changes. It changes. And what it does is you spend more and more time working out of this circle. And then the circle of influence are the things that maybe you can influence, but you don't have direct control. Um, Circle of influence is parenting, right? I mean, I I can't control my child, but I can influence her and him. And then circle of concern are the things that I, I care about, that I have, you know, concern about, but I have no direct control over it. So the more time we can spend here, And the more time we recognize that God is the circle that contains all of these circles and being anchored in that, the more we can experience joy in him. And here's an interesting statement Paul writes as he's processing through this because Paul's modeling being in control. He writes a letter to help a group of people, right? He's telling them, look, I'm rejoicing, I'm I'm singing, I'm declaring, I'm I'm in a place of gratitude because a lot of the letter is focused on gratitude for them and what they've done for him, right? So Paul's intentionally doing all of these things he's in control of. And then he makes this phrase. He says, let your gentleness be evident. Now, this one jumped out at me. Never thought about it before. I was like, oh, that's interesting. That I've always thought it was just a weird uh, combination to have rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness. I'm like, why? And then it hit me. I was like, oh, be evident. It's evidence of something The evidence of our joy is present in our gentleness, which is true, right? I don't know about you, but I can normally tell when someone's stressed, when someone's going through a hard time, when they come home and they're frustrated. And Paul is saying, look, you've got an option. You're going to look up or you're going to lash out. You're going to really be frustrated, and find something to kind of pour out that frustration on. Or you're going to take a step back, remember what you are in control of, and look up realizing that there's one in control of everything, even if it feels out of control. That we're going to look up or lash out. And because Paul knows that we're human, he makes sure he adds the point to all. Because you may think, in my interactions, that I've got it, you know, oh, oh, like, I can fool you with gentleness. I can fool my neighbor with gentleness. But it's really hard to fool your household, right, where it's like, oh, they're such, you know, they're, oh, man, they're not stressed at all. And then when they get home, they're short with their kids. They're screaming at the dog because it didn't come in when you said come in. Uh, the cat did something that just made you mad. Because it's the to-all part where really our gentleness gets to manifest. Because it's a whole lot easy being gentle with people outside your home than it is with those inside your home. And that this is evidence of that security. This is evidence of that joy. That filter of joy plays out in how we interact with people outside of our surroundings. And that ultimately Paul wants to make the point, And he chooses to close with this sentence and this verse. He says, the Lord is near. In chapter 3, he's unpacked. Chapter 2, he's unpacked who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, how Jesus is God's Son who came so that we could become sons and daughters of God too, of how he came to break chains of shame and guilt, as he came so that we could have security even when we're filled with so much insecurity around us. He's saying, I said rejoice in the Lord, but I want you to understand while I'm telling you where to put your joy, I also want to let you know that he's really close by too. So you don't have to go and look for him. You don't have to go and find him. He's near. He's right here with you. And that that is the anchor for us. That's the foundation for us, that as Christians especially, our lives are meant to be marked by joy because the place that our joy is found is in who he is and what he's done. And the fact that God has promised that he will never leave us, never forsake us, and that he's with us. And that's not just some poetic phrase that the Lord is near It's actually the power that we have to overcome fear. It's the power we have to overcome guilt and shame. It's the power we have to take our camera, our mental camera, and refocus in our circumstances. This week, I was kind of working through some stuff, and I remember just going down the road, and um, I knew the song we were closing with this week, so I just turned it on. And I was like, it was easy for my brain to focus on all the things that I'm trying to process through. And I was like, you know what, God? I don't have control of those things, but you, you're in control of everything, and I just turned my music on, and I just chose to focus my mind. Did it change my circumstances? No. Did it change me in my circumstances? Yes. One of my favorite things um, about history is just the details that pop up. Um, It's one of those... um, Things I always have to worry about when I'm having conversations with people so I don't talk too much because I want to be like, did you know in London air raids, da da? da, da." It's like whatever I happen to be like currently engaged with or reading. And I want to give the the too much detail, but I love detail in history. And one of the pieces of detail in the early church I think is really interesting, is outside of the city is something called the catacombs. Now the catacombs were these underground um, burial chambers. the early church did not grow, did not spread in a really friendly environment. For a majority of the early church's history um, under the Roman Empire until Constantine, Christianity was illegal or outlawed and sometimes outright persecuted, which meant that to worship Jesus, to come to come together like we would physically, meant you were threatening your life and your family's life. And so Christians would kind of walk out of the city gates. They would go down a road called the Appio Way. And they would arrive at these old graveyards. And because most of the Roman citizens were afraid of those graveyards, um, they wouldn't come out there. And so they would go and descend down 50, 100 feet underground in these amazing kind of caverns cut from limestone. And they would have church service. And because Christians were considered outlaws, that was also where ultimately many of the Christians were buried. And one of the things, if you ever go to the catacombs, you'll notice is some of the imagery put beside the graves. And one of them, one of the frequent images is this one. It's an anchor with fish. Sometimes the fish would be biting the anchor. Sometimes the fish were beside the anchor. But this was a a, a secret coded message. The fish, the word for fish in that day was ictus. And ictus, um, when you took the word... Each letter was the beginning of a phrase that was Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. That was what those letters translated would mean. And so whenever you were trying to figure out, is this person a Christian or not, oftentimes you would start by drawing a little piece of a fish, and they would draw the other side of it. It was a secret coded message to make sure they were part of the group, because you might be dealing with someone who's trying to find, like Paul was... Christians that were gathering to persecute them before he became a Christian. And so the Christian um, fish, coupled with the anchor, was on a lot of gravestones in the first three centuries. And the idea was that while my body may be here, while I may have perished because of my faith, I want you to know that I have an anchor for my soul, and it's Jesus. And this was something that whenever someone saw this, they knew instantly the message. That it was communicating. That because of Jesus, I can have joy in it, even if I don't enjoy it. That because of Jesus, I can walk with confidence, even when I feel like the world is out of control. I can have security and stability, even if my social media feed has lost its mind. I can have confidence even when I don't feel confident in anything around me. That because of Jesus, even if I lose my job, I know who has provided for my family, who's provided for me ever since I first walked into this earth. That because of Jesus, I have an anchor for my soul. And that the early church walked through pandemics they walked through fires that destroyed the city. They walked through devastating circumstances where they couldn't get a job because they were Christian or because they, because they were Christian, they lost their loved ones or they lost their lives. And what our community of faith is built on is a community of people who demonstrated for thousands of years that Jesus is bigger than the struggle that Jesus is bigger than the pain that Jesus is bigger than the uncertainty that he's greater than the grief that we walk through or that we find ourselves in that he is stronger longer greater wider taller his grace is more magnificent than the guilt that covers us that chases after us All of that pales in comparison to the anchor for our soul who can hold us no matter what we find ourselves in through. That we can walk through hell even while heaven lives within us because he is alive. Because he is on his throne. He is not threatened by what is happening on social media. He is not threatened by whatever goes up and down in the turns of election cycles and pandemic cycles and what is happening in your household And that that changes you in the circumstances, even if you can't change your circumstances. And that what Paul desperately wanted them to know is that because of Jesus, you may not enjoy it, but you can still have joy in it.